This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to the 40th episode of Lens Me Your Ears, the big 4-0. We've hit middle age, and we're still here talking about movies. Uh, this is a very interesting episode because it is the first one that Karsten and I have done via Skype. So it'll sound a little different than our past episodes. Hopefully uh, you will... Uh, Enjoy the content so much you won't even notice the, the audible sonic differences. Uh, that's, a, that's a little bit of an irony, isn't it, given that we are talking about single location movies. It's Yes, and we, we are separated by half of a country, uh, because I am here in Halifax, where we uh, have normally done the show, either at Village Sound or at CKDU Studios. And uh, while I am here in my house with my brand new blue snowball ice microphone, you are where? I'm, I'm in Toronto right now. I hope you don't hold it against uh, me, uh, listeners. Uh, I've got also my computer and my mic, and uh, we're trying this out. Hopefully it sounds okay. Uh, so, yes, as Karsten mentioned, we are doing uh, movies that have a... Uh, a singular location, uh, or they're, they're, they take place in a fairly confined space. I mean, some movies can take place over a vast array of places. You know, your Lawrence of Arabia's, your your Star Wars. <laughs> you know, most movies can take advantage of the fact that they can have this very expansive universe. But but it's kind of interesting when a filmmaker decides to challenge themselves by limiting their action to uh, a single location, either a single room or a single building. And uh, it can make for some interesting filmmaking, even though you'd think that uh, there may not be much variety in terms of sets or... uh, or uh, the passage of time, or what have you, and uh, you know, sometimes it can just seem like a filmed play, perhaps, and sometimes it, in fact, is a filmed play, and we'll talk about a couple of those. But uh, but often it can be a completely original story done for film that uh, is using these interesting limitations, either as a challenge to the filmmakers, to the writer and the director, or perhaps because it was made on the cheap. And uh, that was the best they could do. There's certainly, uh, there's certainly evidence of that when you think of things like uh, some of the Roger Corman cheapies, like Little Shop of Horrors and so on. But uh, most of these films weren't made that way because of budget. Most of the ones we're going to talk about, they're made that way because the story dictated it. And we're starting with a film called Free Fire by British director Ben Wheatley. And I believe it's his, uh, I think it's his fifth film, perhaps, uh, his fifth feature film. And uh, Ben Wheatley is a, is a British filmmaker who is uh, makes these very dark satires. Uh, they're, um, you know, very dark and often very violent commentaries on, on the human condition. And, uh, you know, this, uh, this one, uh, Free Fire, is, is no exception. If, you, if you've seen... Uh, You've seen films like Kill List and uh, A Field in England and, and his uh, previous film High Rise, uh, you'll know that he's not afraid to cut loose in, in often uh, gruesome ways. Um, That's This is totally true, you know. And it, it's funny. Uh, I appreciate that he is a filmmaker who can make... He, he's great with suspense. He's, he's working with some interesting materials, and he's definitely got interesting obsessions. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I'm a really a fan of his work. I understand the people who are, and I, I get why he does uh he has an intensity in his films that i, I appreciate but uh but yeah i have only i haven't seen all of the five i've seen kill list and i've seen high rise uh and i tried to get through field in england it's not very often i give up on a movie but i could not get into it <laughs> but uh he actually it's it should be noted he co-writes his films with his spouse uh, and his creative partner amy jump uh which is an interesting uh kind of a duo there in terms of creative duo uh 
Now, I I think my favorite film of his is High Rise, even though I was a little bit lukewarm on it. At least it, I felt it really used, again, it's a single location film. It's all set in an apartment building in kind of a uh, uh, mythical 1970s England. Uh, I don't really, it doesn't really, it's sort of like the, the, the England that existed in high fashion magazines, not actually in real life. Um, and it's it's an interesting, one of those movies that uses the separation between the floors as kind of an analogy of, of, of class. It's it, it's exploring class. Uh, the people who live on the lower floors are much less well-off than the people who live on the upper floors. In a, in a weird way, um, it reminded me a little bit of that... Uh, uh, what what is it that uh, the 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 train uh, the train movie that um, uh, oh Snowpiercer Snowpiercer yes I I, I, I keep wanting to say Snowpiercer but yeah Snowpiercer yeah Snowpiercer it had a little bit of that same kind of analogy going for it um, but uh, but yeah it's um, uh, interesting film I, I recently saw Kill List which I know is a lot of people's favorites because it's you know horrific and 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 uh, kind of a uh, a hit person uh, psychological uh, drama, and uh, there are parts of it I really liked, but I thought the ending was one of those sort of horror logic endings that was just there to try and creep you out. It didn't actually make any sense, so I, my goodwill for the film dropped considerably in the last ten minutes or so. But uh, but yeah, Free Fire shows up, and I think, oh okay, <laughs> this is going to be something where where uh, you know the it sounds interesting. It's set in the 1970s. It's set entirely outside and in a warehouse supposedly in Boston though I gather they shot it in Brighton in the UK um, and, it, and it has but to me it has that feeling of one of those forgotten post Tarantino gangster pictures from the late 1990s back when everyone loved Reservoir Dogs uh, which I still think is maybe one of the uh, most beloved uh, single location films uh, that has been made in the last 30 or so years I, even though it, it does break out of its location once in a while there you know there's the opening scene at the uh, the diner and then there's some flashback scenes but mostly I think it qualifies as a single location because it takes place in that one space um, Free Fire is definitely uh, that and uh yeah, I just I didn't like any of the characters. Basically, a group, <laughs> two groups of people get together to do an arms deal. Uh, one group are Irish, so we presume that they are IRA, even though I don't think anyone actually says that they are IRA. Uh, and uh, pretty much a given, Irish in seventies. That's probably going to be the IRA. Yeah, probably. Um, so then there are a group of Americans, and then there are like there's like this uh, South African guy. Um, you know, and uh, uh, played by Charlton Copley, of course, because he's like the one South African guy who's <laughs> in in Hollywood who's working these days. Uh, there's Army Hammer, and there's Brie Larson, who doesn't seem to be. I don't know. I, I struck me. She just struck me as being a little out of place in this film. Um, and uh, yeah, and I just and then uh, be, due to circumstances, people start shooting at each other, and it just gets out of control. And everyone is shooting at each other all the time and they basically all have the same reaction to being shot because everyone seems to get shot at some point they grit their teeth they reload their guns and they keep shooting Uh, and by about three quarters of the way through i started to forget the relationship between the characters i started to forget who was friends with whom because they're all just shooting each other and i just was hoping that they would get it over with and kill everybody i i was not a fan of free fire i've got to say yeah, it's it's a film that uh, I think I enjoyed it while it was happening, uh, <laughs> and then once it was over, I was kind of like, 
oh, okay. <laughs> it just it left me feeling kind of empty, you know, for the, for the reason that yeah, that we, you know, we didn't really get to know or understand any of these characters. They certainly weren't going to like any of these characters. I mean, maybe Brie Larson, just by virtue of it being Brie Larson, I suppose. Yeah, she's, that's true. She's un- infallibly likable most of the time. Um, you know, it's interesting that he he has some this kind of re- recurring cast members. Uh, you know, Enzo Salente, who played Bernie, he's been in some other uh, Wheatley films. Michael Smiley, who plays Frank. Oddly enough, he wasn't in High Rise, I don't think, but he has been in, uh, I think, most of the other uh, Wheatley films. He's certainly in A Field in England and Sightseers, which is the first film of his that I saw, just by chance in a theater in Reykjavik, of all places. Um, so, uh, you know, there are, there are lots of familiar faces here, uh, basically. And Patrick Bergen, who we'll talk about in our next uh, episode coming up um he shows up as a as a as a hitman who kind of turns up on the sidelines named howie um which is you know an unrecognizable patrick bergen i didn't realize who it was until the credits rolled and i figured it out but um it's yeah i feel like he's going for a grand analogy here about you know human nature uh and and the uh you know, the attractiveness of, of weaponry uh, and gun porn and, and all that kind of thing. Like, I feel like there's something going on there that we're supposed to get, but isn't necessarily um, implicit or explicit, rather. Uh, sort of like, I mean, High Rise was, too. I mean, High Rise is a, you know, is a J.G. Ballard uh, novel that inspired it, and it's obviously this, you know, the, the this grand, sprawling narrative about... Uh, you know, human society and, and it's, it's different, uh, strata, you know, all confined within this one high rise here. It's more, more focused on, on gun culture and, and, uh, the insanity that, 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 you know, if someone's got a gun and somebody else has got a gun, then chances are good that somebody's going to be using those guns. <laughs> it's this domino effect. And, you know, I, I kind of get what it was getting at, but at the same time, it felt fairly ham fisted to me. Yeah, I, I agree, you know, and I, I don't want to say that I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that characters have to be likable in order for me no. to feel engaged in, in a film. Because they're certainly not in Ben's films. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Uh, a lot of his, yeah, a lot of his characters are pretty loathsome. Uh, but you know, I, I guess I need something more than just uh, either. Uh, I, I needed, I needed something to to make me feel more engaged. Uh, another thing I'd like to point out, uh, I think that. Filmmakers need to retire the use of Creedence Clearwater Revival's oh, "Run Through the Jungle." Yes. I've heard it twice in the last three months. Uh, this and in another Brie Larson picture, "Kong Skull Island," and uh, it just needs to be retired altogether. I, I think I think it's just done. Uh, I will say, however, that uh, a more clever track that was featured prominently in Free Fire was John Denver's uh, "Annie" song, which I thought was hilarious. Well, this this was the second time I heard. John Denver in a film, and now I'm hard pressed to remember what the other film that I heard it in was. But um, it's 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 a more interesting counterpart to the insane happenings uh, than uh, yeah than another CCR uh, reference. It's it's sad. I'm almost starting to feel about CCR the way that the the dude in the Big Lebowski feels about the Eagles, and I don't want that to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. There's so many wonderful songs, but they really are. I think for I think that song in particular is kind of shorthand for like Vietnam and for the '70s or something, or for the cynicism of the '70s. That's the way it seems to be used a lot, and uh, and I think it's just 
I, I really wish that uh, filmmakers would watch more other people's movies and maybe they would figure this out because <laughs> no one's listening to us, <laughs> clearly. Well, oddly enough, you know, Tarantino's been very specific about, uh, about you know, being careful not to use songs that have been used to death in other films. Although, you know, it's interesting that he did use, like, the theme to uh, Across 110th Street in Jackie Brown in a, in a fairly obvious way, but... I guess because it wasn't like a hit song, it was just a song from another great movie that he loves. It sort of worked, but but he's been very vocal about you know trying to be creative with song choices and not go for the obvious obvious ones like like a CCR or what have you. Yeah, um, I appreciate that. I appreciated that. Uh, also, uh, James Gunn in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I think he was more or less uh, you know choosing some interesting. Uh, uh, 70s AM radio staples, ones of which that I, some of which weren't weren't the obvious ones. <laughs> yeah, to devote so much time to Brandy, you're a fine girl in, uh, in the in the latest Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought it was a very, very brave choice. Yes, um, yes, indeed. Because <laughs> that song is terrible. <laughs> um, but then again, I was around the first time around, so <laughs> I have that that uh, foreknowledge, I guess. Um, I guess, but but while we're talking about free fire, I do kind of like the way it uses the the location. At least um, there is that aspect of it going for it. Uh, you know, when they finally get to the upstairs office and there's a phone that works, and you know, at least that is you know to to kind of stretch out the drama. I I thought that was fairly interesting. Um, you know, there is a slapstick element to the film that I appreciated, even if it's you know, actual bullets entering people's flesh as, as a punchline, which, you know, in reality, not that funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> getting, true. it's you know, true. Getting shot. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I agree. I, I like that segment where they're, they're actually somewhere else other than the sort of main area of the, uh, of the warehouse. Because one thing about the movie that bothered me is that I didn't really have a good sense of where the, the people were in relation to one another, and that's that's I think um, a problem in a lot of action movies is, and it, and it, it emphasizes I think the importance of spatial coherence, and it's something that uh, that I think only certain filmmakers have, and I'll a big a big up to the uh, the guys who were responsible for the two. Um, John Wick movies because you really knew where John was and where the other guys were who were trying to shoot at him and where he was trying yes. to shoot them. Whereas in this film, you really sort of have to take it on faith that that these people are shooting at who they're supposed to be shooting at because because a lot of the time I didn't know where I was. Yeah, John Wick really does set the the standard for uh, for, for chaotic uh, gunplay in movies now, just be, by virtue of you know how well orchestrated and edited and coherent those those scenes are uh you know after after years maybe even a couple of decades of real blendery editing of action scenes you know to actually see a movie that you know is essentially relies on 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 the power of its action scenes to actually have them be fairly coherent and and uh you know still still very thrilling but but also uh it completely uh you know, trackable is, is, is a real wonder in those films. And I'm hoping that that will, you know, and he's, and of course the, they're taking their cues from the John Woo movies where, where things, you know, as crazy as those, uh, those gunplay scenes get in the John Woo movies, they were still, you know, I, maybe because he used so much slow-mo as well as the, you know, this, the, the cuts and, and the speeding up and stuff that, that, uh, it's still, uh, coherent, but that that is you know in the in the Michael Bay world of of action films it it's gotten a bit into into you know the split second cuts and things like that where you 
it doesn't really make it that much more thrilling when you don't know what the heck is going on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, given that I didn't love Free Fire too much, uh, and I think we've said quite a bit about it, maybe, uh, maybe it's uh, this. Will, I'll take this opportunity to segue gently into just a, a little uh, look at some of these other single location films, many of which I have loved a lot more. Uh, now, famously, I think uh, Alfred Hitchcock is a filmmaker that has uh, given us some some great uh, single location films uh, Rope, uh, Lifeboat and Rear Window I think all qualify sure. Have I, am I leaving any out? Uh, to a lesser degree I would add uh, Dial In For Murder um, Oh which right, would, yeah Which uh, not entirely because of course Ray Milland the philandering husband uh, who's trying to get rid of his wife he's at the club or wherever he is while he's He's got his old blackmailed his old school chum into murdering his wife, but um, most of the most of it takes place within the confines of their uh, London townhouse, I, I think, and uh, including the, the famous scene. And of course, the, the the joke on that film is that it was shot in 3D, uh, when in fact it all takes place on a, a fairly humdrum set of a London house um, where there's they're not throwing anything at the camera or whatever but but if you do see it in 3d then you realize he's placed objects in the foreground to kind of emphasize if if you watch it just flat you don't even notice but if you watch it in 3d there's objects in the foreground and then of course when the murder scene does happen um that's when the fireworks go off you know when she's reaching out towards the camera and she's got the the scissors and the guy's strangling and you know he's lurking behind the curtain and all that stuff you know it, it all comes alive for the one scene. Like the, basically the whole movie is built for that one, uh, murder scene. And, um, uh, you know, but the rest of it, and then the inspector comes over and they unravels the, the truth of what happened in the, the murder case and all that. So, but, um, but, and it was based on a play. So I guess that, that sort of dictates the, the, um, the choice to limit it to, uh, to certain locations. Um, and I think rope is also, uh, sort of from a stage-bound source. But not. Uh, but Rear Window and Lifeboat are certainly original creations for the screen. Yeah, yeah, and they both... Uh, and I can understand why Hitchcock would choose to do a single-location film. I mean, the man who, of course, is the master of suspense. Uh, and yeah. single-location does force filmmakers to tell stories that really rely on suspense on, on because you don't have much else to go on. Uh, you just get, put your characters in desperate situations where they can't get away. Um, now, thinking of Lifeboat also was reminded of The Disappeared, which is a, a film, a Nova Scotian film, where it was actually shot on lifeboats off the coast of Lunenburg, uh, of, of, of Nova Scotia, and in, in, in often terrible weather, uh, wherein the actors got sick. So, uh, so you know, that's, if, if you can track down that film, that is an incredible, uh, just a technical exercise. It's really something. Um, and there have been a number of other ones recently. Uh, again, some of these, I think, were done purely because of concept, and some were done because it made sense on the budgetary side. Uh, there's Buried with Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, about a man who's been buried alive, who never, and we never leave the coffin. He's got a, you know, he's stuck in there with a cell phone. It's not recommended for claustrophobes. Um, Hard Candy with Ellen Page and Patrick Wilson. Uh, Funny Games, Michael Haneke, about a home invasion. Now, that made me think about The Desperate Hours, uh, the William Wyler version with Bogart, and then also it was remade uh, by Michael Cimino with uh, uh, Mickey, Mickey Rourke, Rourke and, yeah, and Anthony Hopkins, which is actually a better movie, I think, than reviewers gave it credit for at the time. Um, there's Boonwell's Exterminating Angel about a, a dinner party where none of the guests are able to leave. Um, Bergman's Persona, um, 
You've got uh, Bruce McDonald's Pontypool to bring it back to Canada about a zombie outbreak from the perspective of a radio station DJ. You never leave the station. Um, and, of course, there's quite a few horror movies if you consider Saw and Paranormal Activity. <laughs> um, maybe my favorite um, single-location film of my childhood was Assault on Precinct 13, which is a great thriller, John Carpenter's siege drama. You know, uh, and all. And I, I'm sure this was... was sort of uh, inspired by by budget you know he he had the one location and he just came up with a story and then you have people jumping in and out of windows uh all night um you know and and as you mentioned um uh, tarantino reservoir dogs and his more recent film the hateful eight which actually has some other locations to begin with but the bulk of the film i think 80 percent of it takes place at uh, minnie's haberdashery um so uh yeah i mean that's just as a cross-section that's a that's a pretty interesting collection of films i was wondering whether or not die hard qualified as a single location film uh you know in, in relation to high rise i mean they're both take place in a building um you know and and uh in multiple floors in a building but still a building so so i, I mean it's a bit of a stretch maybe but i still think it qualifies single location but many many sets yes yes indeed <laughs> uh so clearly that wasn't done because of uh of budget no. but uh but other single location films uh the breakfast club uh which was also a popular one from when i was uh, a ute uh dog day afternoon and a movie that uh I find very hard to recommend to people when I describe it, but it's actually a total delight, and that's my dinner with Andre. Louis Malle's filming of a dinner conversation between old friends, Wallace Shawn and Andre uh, Andrew, Andre Gregory. Uh, yeah. So anyway, and uh, and maybe I don't know. Maybe the most famous famous single location film might be might be Twelve Angry Men, which I know you recently rewatched. Yeah, I, I returned to that film uh, not too long ago, and. Uh... Quite, quite enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those films that it, it just because its reputation kind of preceded it. I I think I avoided it for a really long time. Um, and plus, I, I I have this kind of weird mental block when it comes to movies based on plays that I, you know, I I kind of think, well, if it was meant to be a play, why would I see a movie of it? Kind of thing. But obviously, there's lots of movies. You know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is such a such a great film adaptation. I don't know why I had that bizarre prejudice and uh and and 12 angry men also overcame that i i thought it was it all takes place in a single room for the most part Uh, i think they're out in the hallway briefly at the start and on the courthouse steps at the end but uh you know where a cast an amazing cast of actors led by uh, henry fonda you know uh, dicker over the uh, guilty verdict in a murder trial and uh you know eventually just realized there's just too much reasonable doubt to uh to convict this guy when in fact everybody wants to send him to the the gas chamber right off the bat, um, but it's that little shat, nagging shadow of a doubt that uh, gets its way in there and, and you know, ensures that, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> he goes, you know, he doesn't go to the gas chamber. But, um, uh, and directed by, you know, it was a play. I believe there's a TV adaptation as well uh, prior to it becoming a feature film. A uh, very early movie for Sidney Lumet, who, of course, would go on to direct many great uh, films, especially his New York films. You think of Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and, and um, also The Verdict, you know, another courtroom movie um, with, with Paul Newman, the wonderful The Verdict. Um, but, uh, but, but here it's, 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 it's all tightly contained within a room. It's, the camera movement is very subtle. I mean, this is, it's, you know, it, it doesn't feel claustrophobic. It's, you know, the camera work and the editing really have this depth and breadth to them that, that uh, 
propel you through this uh, about 96 minutes of, of, of drama and uh, the, just the you know you don't really feel the time going by the, the interaction between this amazing cast uh, is 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 quite something it's it, it's um, you know it, it'd be interesting to see an updated version I'm sure it has been updated on stage and and elsewhere with a more uh, you know a more multiracial cast uh, you know it's all men of course in this version and, and that would uh, that doesn't really jive with the uh, with the the way things are today, but uh, if you try to just put your mind to that time in, in the late fifties and uh, the justice system at the time, then it's uh, it's still got a lot of potent things to say about you know the justice system, why it's supposed to work, um, some of the in, innate prejudices that lead people to want to uh, you know send this kid to to the death chamber. Um, you know they don't specify a race of of the uh, suspect or the the um, the defendant, I guess I should say, uh, but there's you know there's all these references to, to kind of slum housing and, and and those people and and all this kind of thing that that uh, you know your your mind kind of fills in the rest of the the uh, the guesswork I guess fills in the, the empty spaces with your own uh, assumptions and uh, just a, just powerhouse stuff. I mean Henry Fonda, you know an actor that. Um, I've liked in some stuff, haven't liked in others. He's not one of my favorites, but if you give me a film like Once Upon a Time in the West or, um, you know, The Lady Eve where he's doing comedy, uh, you know, when he can bring that kind of quiet grace to what he's doing, uh, you know, really, really a powerful actor. And, and here he, he gives a wonderful performance. It's just a, an average Joe who just has that nagging doubt and doesn't want to give in to the mob mentality. And and uh, in, in that regard, it's, it's still a sort of a, a, a prescient and important film today. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. So science fiction has used the single location a few times. I can think of a few movies. Um, I, uh, I certainly uh, very much enjoyed a couple of years ago Ex Machina, which I think we've talked about before in our, our, our podcast, uh, Tech uh, That Will Destroy Us. That was yes, one of the exactly, films that yes. came up. Uh, basically, four characters are stuck together in a very modernist space wherein uh, at least one of the characters is a machine. Um, and it's it's very much it uses location amazingly, um, and uh, you know I was thinking further back, uh, Silent Running I think might qualify. It's a, a you know Bruce Dern uh, as a caretaker of a of a ship traveling through space. He's only got a few robots to work with, and uh, and and he's he's basically a botanist uh, taking care of these uh, the the last uh, plant life. Uh, that that is is you know hopefully that that the survives from from Earth and uh, it, it's a uh, it's an interesting film uh, politically but uh, great science fiction and I guess it the fact that it all takes place on the ship uh, I guess qualifies as a um, uh, as a single location um, I was also thinking about 
Cube from 1997. Uh, Vincenzo Natali uh, directed a film. This is a Canadian cult science fiction picture about a group of people trapped in a series of interconnected cube rooms with passageways in the walls and floors and ceilings, but the rooms are are booby-trapped, so as people move between the rooms, they have to figure out whether or not they're safe or whether they're about to be killed. And uh, the only difference between the, the cubes are the colors. So, of course, they actually shot it on a soundstage in Toronto and uh, and just changed the colors as they went from room to room. And it's uh, it's it's a really clever conceit, and uh, and it's a film I think has has over the years garnered a lot of affection but uh yeah that's that is a very unusual way to use a single location well i'm i'm a big fan of silent running it's uh obviously uh the fact that it's douglas turnbull who uh you know did the special effects or you know certainly was a big contributor to the special effects of 2001 space odyssey kind of going out on his own and, and doing this feature um which is you know has a very then 70s like ecological uh, paranoia <laughs> kind of uh, kind of theme, which uh, you know, which we're still feeling today in a lot of ways. I mean, be- I think because of the the fate of the earth, you know, you think of Silent Spring and a lot of uh, a lot of books that were predicting the worst uh, at the time. Uh, there was a lot of rationale behind that film, and uh, Bruce Dern just gives a riveting performance as this guy basically coming apart at the seams while uh, out there in deep space with these uh, you know with these pods containing some of the last of uh, Earth's plant life. And, uh, you know, so it's got that connection to Earth, but also to deep space and uh, the void that surrounds it. And this one guy who's cracking under pressure, even as he befriends these these robots that he names Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Uh, you know, it was one of those films that I, I, I read about it for years and years and didn't see it for the longest time. I think until, you know, I had a chance, maybe even until it showed up on DVD. Because it's one of those films that just seemed to have more of a reputation than it was known and uh, so I wasn't really sure what uh, what would prepare me for it uh, when I finally saw it it does feel very 70s maybe the Joan Baez theme song might have something to do with that I don't know um, and, and some of the music in it it does feel like a piece of its time but but certainly other films have come along that have paid homage to uh, silent running in a lot of ways that uh, you know, it's obviously people still have a lot of affection for it. And the fact that it doesn't, it's not about monsters or, you know, laser beams and dog fighting spaceships. Uh, you know, the fact that you can do a science fiction film that isn't about this kind of Flash Gordon-y type space opera, I think was, that was a, you know, cer- certainly following in the footsteps of 2001, but also at the same time was still a fairly new concept. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've also... Um seen seen moon which i know is is quite indebted to silent running yeah there's clearly a debt owed here because of course moon is is set on a moon base they're they're mining the moon for uh using helium as a power source for earth and poor old sam rockwell is uh the one guy who's on the moon base who's uh maintaining the equipment and going out every day and making sure that the the diggers or draggers or whatever they're there on the dark side digging up uh Digging up uh, minerals are doing their job and, and kind of running the space station with the help, you know, and, and a nod to 2001 with the help of, a, you know, an AI computer with the voice of Kevin Spacey. So, which I don't know, you know, I mean, the voice of Hal, they picked a Canadian actor because they wanted the most neutral voice they could find. Uh, and for Moon, they went with Kevin Spacey. Of course, it's Duncan Jones, the son of uh, David Jones, a.k.a. David Bowie. Um, 
who's directing here and, and and does a terrific job with this film. I thought that you know, considering it's a one man show for the most part with uh, Sam Rockwell, uh, and eventually Sam Rockwell acting opposite himself, because we start to learn the truth about uh, this moon base and his role in this this whole thing. Um, you know, it's it's a big challenge I think around on all sides, and and again, very entertaining and, and very captivating through its entire running time. I, I I didn't feel bored by seeing the same, you know, docking bays and then moon, moon rovers and all that kind of stuff all over again, just because it's the this conundrum that Sam Rockwell finds himself in that what you know, you know, does he actually exist as a person or or is this this uh, you know is is his are his memories and everything kind of manufactured just to make him continue to do this job on this moon base and to keep them going. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a good question. And, and, you know, I, uh, I wondered about that myself. I actually was thinking a lot of space 1999 when I watched the, uh, the movie oh, yes. and, and I, I really liked the production design and I, I like what, uh, what Jones is doing here. And I really like Rockwell. I mean, he's not someone who does a lot of starring roles, but, uh, but he's, he's really good in this. Um, yeah. And, you know, interestingly, uh, um, the director when his next film source code was also kind of a, a single location film i mean it actually i guess it jumps between two locations but a lot of it takes place on a train on the, on the train, way yeah. into chicago and then there's sort of a time loop um it's another science fiction picture but uh, yeah i think moon is great people should definitely seek it out yeah so jeez i totally forgot about source code that was that was a terrific film unfortunately then he followed up with world of warcraft so i'm hope, i'm hoping uh, I'm hoping he recovers from the, from that debacle. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I, I wanted to also mention a couple of uh, other more recent science fiction films that are single location. There's one called Coherence from 2013 that I believe actually can be found on Netflix right now. Uh, Canadian Netflix, that is. And um, it's about uh, eight sort of dissatisfied urbanites who gather together for a party on a night when a comet burns through the sky and then all their mobile phones go dead and all the the neighborhood loses power um and then uh, a one house a little ways down the road seems to have light so they go and investigate and they find out that a, an entire duplicate of themselves are gathered a group the same like basically the same people are are gathered in this house down the road and then things get really weird um it's it's very high concept sci-fi then they get weird um and it's all about parallel realities and uh and it's uh and you know it's a clever way to shoot uh something on a fairly reasonably tight budget um and i i would uh i would also compare it to another film with duplicates uh it's something called the one i love directed by charlie mcdowell who we discovered is malcolm mcdowell's son uh and produced by the duplass brothers their indie production house uh in it uh, mark duplass and elizabeth moss are a couple who are having trouble and they uh go away for a weekend retreat trying to save their their relationship into this remote home with a swimming pool and a guest house and in the guest house they find duplicates of themselves uh but only they can only enter one at a time and when they do of course they find their partner's alternative self uh, and wouldn't you know it one of them to one of them the alternative seems more attractive than the actual uh and it's sort of an examination of the particulars of relationships <laughs> and how we idealize our partners 
um, and then acknowledging that there's a point beyond which we won't go in our love life. Um, so yeah, the, both the one I love and coherence, I think both use a uh, single location very cleverly. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by that. Uh, the one I love, uh, just cause I like that cast and, and, uh, Oddly enough, you know, I was thinking about Malcolm McDowell because there's some homages to Clockwork Orange in High Rise, which also features Elizabeth Moss. So this is a weird <laughs> confluence of interest of, of uh, influences happening within the space of a couple of films here. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. And and I I think uh, Moss is making some interesting choices these days. Uh, I've just been catching up with her uh, performance in The Handmaid's Tale and on television, and boy, is she terrific. Uh, I haven't seen that yet, but it totally she's perfect for that film. I can totally see her in that project, in that that updating. So that's definitely high in my list of things I need to see because I love the original movie so much, which I believe is now getting because we talked about on a previous episode about how that was a hard one to find. I believe it's now getting a reissue, um, on, on physical media. So okay, that's I good think, news. I think there will be a Blu-ray of that very shortly if it isn't out already. <laughs> So uh, we spoke a little bit about how uh, there are a lot of single location films that are adapted from plays, which makes all sorts of sense. Uh, I think filmmakers have a choice. Do they open up the film from the play and try and adapt it in such a way to move it into multiple locations, or do they just sort of keep it in that single location? Uh, And, uh, you know, it depends, I guess, on the movie. Um, Nicholas Rogue adapted uh, Terry Johnson play Insignificance in 1985, which imagines one night where Marilyn Monroe, Albert Einstein, Joe McCarthy, and Joe DiMaggio meet in a hotel. Uh, it's a terrific story that humanizes these icons, but also uses them to explore some you know, dark truths about the human experience, which you'd expect from a director like Nicholas Rogue. Um, and it's, uh, it's definitely worth seeing, and it takes place mostly in a hotel room. Uh, you mentioned Glengarry Glenn Ross, um, and then there's Louis Malle again with his friends uh, Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory with Vanya on 42nd Street, which sees, sees the Chekhov play performed in a dilapidated theater in Manhattan, uh, which is done so beautifully. The actors are just talking before they start, and it all just seems like a documentary about actors preparing these roles, and all of a sudden we're in the play. Uh, it's very graceful, and it's probably my favorite Chekhov production, uh, and it's it's uh, one of my favorite Julianne Moore performances. She's, she's just getting her career going at that point. Um, but recently, I watched... Uh, Death and the Maiden from 1994. This is Ariel Dorfman's play, uh, adapted by um, Roman Polanski. It's set in an unnamed South American country after the fall of a dictatorship, and Sigourney Weaver plays the wife of a lawyer, played by Stuart Wilson, who's just been named one of the head uh, of an investigation into the atrocities that were committed under the previous dictator. Now, one rainy night, they're alone in their cottage, and they encounter a man who's a doctor, played by Ben Kingsley, and the uh, Sigourney Weaver character is sure that he is the guy who raped and tortured her, even though she was blindfolded through that whole experience. She's convinced he's the guy because she recognizes his voice, and what follows is a terrifically suspenseful story about you know, about men and women and violence and, and institutionalized systemic cruelty 
Uh, it might be Sigourney Weaver's best role. She is so strong in this film. And that's saying something, given the kind of career that she's had. So I'd really recommend Death and the Maiden if, if uh, people are looking for something suspenseful and, uh, you know, and literate, too. I mean, obviously being uh, adapted from a strong play. Yeah, and it's clearly uh, material that resonates with Polanski, given his uh, his past of of, of uh, fleeing from the Nazis, losing family and friends during the Second World War, and uh, you know you can see why this uh, this he's never shied away from material that uh, mirrors the dark side of his own existence. I mean, you look at you know the version of Macbeth that came out uh, after his his wife uh, his pregnant wife Sharon Tate had been murdered by the Manson family uh he clearly has no problems uh kind of taking those those the darkest of human impulses and throwing them up on the screen even even when they have the, these very strong echoes in his own life which you know the vast majority of us can only can only imagine uh so, so to, to take a play like you know when when the play already exists of course it feels ready made for this kind of delivery and um you know, it's Ben Kingsley. Uh, his career hasn't always had the strongest uh, kind of ascension. You know, he's often in material that's kind of beneath him in one way or another. But here's one where he gets a chance to to have something to really bite into. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he's he's really good in this. And, and uh, it, I think it was uh, he'd often played in his earlier career very sympathetic people, and obviously. For a long time, uh, he was uh, associated with Gandhi, um, but uh, here he plays someone who you don't—you're not really sure whether or not he's guilty. I mean, that's where the suspense comes from. Is—is he—is he the person that she thinks he is? And if at a certain point he was to confess, is he confessing just because he's being tortured uh, by his, you know, antagonist? Um, so so yeah, it's a um, it's it's definitely a, a, a strong film, and uh, and it's it's great performances from from everyone involved. Now I do want to say that uh, that this idea of filming plays is not something I generally am a big fan of. Uh, Polanski did a great job here, but he also filmed Carnage. Uh, a play back in in 2011, and I couldn't stand that one. I thought that was terrible. So, and I I gotta say that that I have been critical of times when when films have adapted plays and they haven't opened them up, but there doesn't seem to be any reason for them to be all restrained into one room. I mean, if you're gonna make a single location film, whether it's a, a play adaptation of adaptation of a play or not. You know, I think there's there needs to be a reason. There needs to be a an outside tension or a suspense, uh, a reason to keep you know people in uh, in in a single location. And if there isn't, then it just becomes forced and often kind of dull. So so uh, generally, I, I I have been critical of a of a theatricality that that certain certain films have that are in a single location or 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 have been adapted from plays uh um you know i mean yeah this is but though this is why uh submarine movies often are so much fun uh, um and <laughs> yes. we've talked about that in a previous podcast is a single location but there's incredible tension from the outside which is why they work so well the movies like das boot yeah well that's a whole you know obviously we've already done that show so uh we i refer you back to the uh, lends me your ears archives for a discussion of claustrophobia uh, under the sea um, while we're just brief sort of on a tangent to Death and the Maiden um, a year before uh, 
or well, I guess maybe even in the same year that Death and the Maiden came out, Polanski uh, did not direct, but actually appeared as an actor uh, in a film directed by Giuseppe Tornatore, who's probably best known for uh, Cinema Paradiso, the kind of uh, nostalgic reminiscence about the importance of movies in his own life and the small town uh, Italian theater from when he grew up, um, where he learned about classic movies and all that sort of thing. Um, but less known is this film called A Pure Formality, where um, Polanski plays a police inspector who's uh, interviewing a murder suspect played by Gerard Depardieu. And most of the film takes place in the interrogation room um, where Depardieu plays a, a famous writer who's sort of been dealing with uh, writer's block and he's picked up um, on connection with a, a murder that he doesn't know anything about but doesn't have any memory of. And, and basically it's just the back and forth between these two men trying to get to the truth of, of this mysterious uh, murder. There's, there's kind of a Kafka-esque uh, element to the film. And, you know, I remember I saw it, uh, it, it takes place on a very rainy, stormy night, so the sound design is very important in the film. I mean, like I say, most of it takes place in the interrogation room, so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, camera work and editing and, and sound design at play to make this uh, really come alive. And a lot of it has to do with the just the one-on-one performances between these two men. And Stepardieu, before he became more of a, a bit of a joke as far as uh, acting went. Uh, he's still kind of at the height of his powers in this film. And uh, it's, it's you know, I, I haven't seen it since it came out. In fact, it's just when you mentioned Death and the Maiden, because it's about an interrogation and, and, a, and a crime from the past, um, you know, it, it came back to mind. And I thought, geez, I wonder if that's as good. And I, like I said, I haven't revisited it since it came out, but I remember it as being a fairly powerful film. Is it, is it uh, still available, like, uh, in anywhere, easily? I'm sure it's out there somewhere. <laughs> Again, I, I just, you know, I don't always think about whether something's easily uh, available on physical media. It might be on YouTube. Who knows? There's so many different options these days. But, uh, you know, given, given Tornatori's uh, reputation, I think it'd be available somewhere. But if you get a chance to see a pure formality, uh, I def- definitely recommend giving it a giving it a go. Okay, very good. Um, now, we should probably wrap up. I think we're getting close to the end of our, uh, of our disc conversation about single location films here on Lends Me Your Ears. Um, I have one that I definitely want to recommend to folks, but but you've also seen another one uh, recently, of course, our Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning Fences. Do you want to say a few things about that? Yeah, well, I mean, this, this was Denzel Washington directing uh, uh, based on the August Wilson play Fences, which he appeared in on Broadway for hundreds of performances. And so clearly it was a, uh, you know, uh, clearly a, uh, a project close to his heart. And he was able to bring in most, if not all, of the original uh, stage cast, including uh, Viola Davis, who won an Oscar for her role as uh, his character Troy's uh, long-suffering right wife, Rose. And, uh, yeah, it, it's about a, a guy living in Pittsburgh. He's a sanitation worker uh, who had dreams of playing baseball and, I, I guess, swinging for the fences. <laughs> Although there's a, a recurring motif about him uh, taking forever to build a fence in the in the backyard as well, um, and it, it's basically kind of a grandstanding performance by uh, by Washington as this character Troy, who who um, you know has a lot of issues with his son, who uh, you know wants to play football and go to college, and uh, you know he he has I don't know he has some issues with his son uh, succeeding in, in any way, shape, or form, or you know somehow showing up his old man. Um, by being more successful than 
than he was able to become. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's a great family dynamic throughout the film. Um, the passage of time uh, is very subtly suggested throughout the course of the film. And, uh, and Viola Davis is terrific as Rose. Uh, you know, it, most of it takes place in the backyard, which is kind of like, you know, Troy's kingdom, more or less. That's where he holds sway. You know, occasionally taking swats at a baseball that's hanging from a rope uh, from a tree. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty powerful uh, statement on friendship and family and, and, uh, you know, trying to improve life for future generations. Or, you know, in the case of Troy, perhaps hold them back uh, when he should be uh, helping to open doors instead. Uh, And I guess that's the the lesson we're supposed to take from it. But but powerful stuff. And, uh, you know, it does occasionally feel more play-like than I would like, uh, you know, it's, it's stage roots. You know, there's nothing worse than when you say a film feels stagey because then it just feels like it's it's confined. It's not doing what it should be doing as a film. Um, and thankfully, Fences, you know, the performances and, uh, you know, Denzel is not doing subtle work here, but it is uh, it is impressive uh, as a fully fleshed character. And, and thankfully, that staginess doesn't overwhelm the story and, and the performances as a whole. I'm a little embarrassed to say I wasn't able to see it during its run in cinemas and it's definitely still on my list to uh to see um certainly given all the acclaim it got during the awards season well it's worth seeing you know it's uh, you know it's great that that denzel has the power to give himself you know this kind of uh, role and get it on the get it on the on the big screen um certainly at a time when you know we we want to see more diverse uh, casts on on screen we want to see a, a wider range of of roles for actors of of all backgrounds all colors and creeds and so on and and uh and fences was a really warm uh, genuine story that even despite its theatricality was still very believable in terms of uh you know getting the, the feel for this character's life and what he's gone through, you know, when, when his, his, uh, his own sports dreams were dashed and he's settled for life as a, as a garbage man, which, you know, is still better than the life than a lot of people get to lead. So, uh, it's, um, you know, it, it's powerful. It's wistful. It's, it's a bit sentimental and, uh, and it, it's a little old fashioned too. You, you, you know, you don't really see these kinds of, um, kind of grandiose performances so much anymore but uh but but denzel kind of you know he reels it back in when he needs to uh but it's 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 vivid when it needs to be too and uh you know uh as as a director he's he's got some chops there too and and it'd be nice to see him do more in that department as well very good very good um i wanted before we go i just wanted to talk a little bit about my favorite uh a single location film of recent years, and that's Locke, written and directed by Stephen Knight. Uh, this is a film that the single location is inside a car. Ivan Locke is played by Tom Hardy, and he's a Birmingham construction manager. It's about 9 p.m. on the night before a huge pour. That's the day when the concrete goes into a foundation of a skyscraper. And uh, everything has to be perfect. All the equipment has to work, and the roads need to be managed to the hundreds of trucks to come and go to the site. And Locke's got nine years of, of experience doing this. He's reliable, he's professional, but instead of preparing for this big day, he's on the highway. He's driving to London, because in London there's a woman having his baby. And he needs to be there. And this is a woman uh, he's had the, he's impregnated outside of his marriage. So what he needs to do is call his wife and his two sons who are home watching a soccer match and explain to them what's happened. Um, so we spend the whole time in the car 
but it feels like the film has three other locations. We may not see them, but uh, we can imagine the details of the construction office where he calls to set things up for the following day, the hospital in London, and then his suburban home. And through all these desperate voices of people on the telephone. Uh, so when Locke isn't putting out fires, he's taking on the demonic spirit of his judgmental father who's sitting in the back seat who we never actually see but we hear sort of uh through Locke's uh, uh reactions uh and it is a terrific performance tom hardy is incredible in the role he really brings this story alive and i i wouldn't imagine that this would work but it really, really does. It's about the story of a guy who's decided that this is the right thing for him to do, no matter what the cost to his life, to his professional life, and to his family. Um, and uh, we, through the whole movie, which isn't very long, it's, I think, less than an hour and a half, we, we can figure out whether or not we think it's the right thing for him to do. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a terrific film. And uh, people who are seeing what, can, what kind of drama can be squeezed out of a single location, uh, check out Locke. Yeah, I haven't seen Locke. It's on my to-watch list on Netflix. But, of course, uh, I don't know why I've waited this long because Hardy uh, has, hasn't let me down yet as far as uh, performances go. E- even when the film itself is a little run-of-the-mill, I'm thinking of his, uh, his film about the craze that was out not too long ago. And, but he still did great work playing the twin brothers. But uh, I felt that the film you know, was fairly predictable and, and not as exciting as it should have been with that kind of material. But but uh, but he was great in it, and I've always uh, I've always found him watchable. I mean, if it'd been the lesser actors, I would have disliked it even more. But um, you know, the, the fact that he has that kind of screen presence, and and you know, he does have actual screen presence, which is a rare uh, rare commodity, I find. To, you know, that the uh, you know there can be actors you like, but can they hold your uh, attention? You know, there's there's that old you know I would watch them reading the phone book for an hour or whatever. Um, and, and he might be one of those actors that actually could get away with that, but there aren't too many of them. Well, that wraps up our look at movies with limited locations, uh, forcing drama out of a confined space or handful of closely connected spaces it's it's hard to define this in a quick phrase but but you get the general idea if you've listened to the show this far and um one thing i wanted to mention was maybe talk uh, if you get a chance maybe go back to the dawn of early films some of the maybe some of the early uh dw griffith films or or some early slapstick uh comedies that that also combine themselves to one space of course in those days they didn't have a lot of sets to work with or a lot of locations or what have you those films were were you know made on the quick um you know, necessity dictated that they use uh, little in the way of locations and casts and costumes and all that kind of thing. But there are a couple that came to mind. Uh, uh, Charles Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, uh, in a short film called 1AM. It must be on YouTube at the very least. Um, one of my favorite shorts by him. And he's not actually playing the tramp in this one. He's, he's coming home late at night, 1AM. He's plastered out of his mind. And he's, trying, he's just trying to get to bed. And he does battle with every... Um, you know, in his living room, basically, he's doing battle with every inanimate object on the way to get up the stairs to the bedroom, and from a, a spinning round table to a a, a bare rug to a, a clock with a giant pendulum. It's it's one of his funniest shorts. If you get a chance, check that out. Also, Buster Keaton's The Navigator. Um, uh, as luck would have it, his production company was able to buy a cheap uh, freighter that was heading for the scrapyard. And what they did was they, they made a film about a hapless uh, sort of rich ne'er-do-well who uh, 
through a series of contrivances, winds up all alone on this freighter, which is adrift at sea, um, as it turns out, with the woman who is the object of his affection. So the two of them are, are kind of stuck at sea on this freighter with very little resources, and uh, just uh, and both of them are fairly helpless because they're rich and stupid, and uh, so we get to see uh, we get to see how they cope uh, with this situation. And there's some amazing physical gags and uh, some well-timed stunts, and uh, the use of the ship is is very clever as well. Especially when the two don't know that each other is on the ship and they're chasing each other around. Uh, some of my favorite stuff in comedy right there. So uh, lots of stuff to look for if you want to see some films that are very creative in the way they use uh, space and time, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll get something out of those films. Uh, So that's it for this week. My name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm Karsten Knox, and you can find me on Twitter uh, by the name of my pod, my, not my podcast, this is my podcast, Uh, my, (laughs) my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris. Uh, and of course, uh, we have our own uh, Twitter account, Lends Me Your Ears, uh, or at Lends Me Your Ears. And if you have a few thoughts, you can send them to us at Lends Me Your Ears Podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're uh, enjoying these shows and you feel like uh, lending us some support, you can find us on Patreon if you want to throw a few pennies our way. And uh, we also have a Facebook page that we should be updating a little more often than we are. So uh, uh, check that out, and uh, you can send us annoying messages and telling us to to get with it with that too uh, as always we'd like to thank the folks at the Village Soundcast Network and CKDU FM in Halifax 88.1 uh, where we air every other Tuesday thanks and we'll see you next time Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia for the Village Soundcast Network all music courtesy of Gypsophilia check out all of their amazing music tour dates and so much more at gypsophilia.org This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.